we need to start embracing the cyberpunk side of it and we need to start embracing sort of the anti-establishment side of it. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagme Ventures. On today's episode, we have Evo Georgiev, co-founder and CEO at Empire. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagme Ventures podcast where we do snapshots with interesting founders from across Web3. Check out wagmeventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Evo and Empire. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Evo Georgiev, co-founder and CEO at Ambire. Evo, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm really, really excited to chat. You know, I think to start, it would be really great to just learn a little bit more about your story and kind of professional story, really. Like, how did you end up in crypto? And then also, you know, what led to Ambire? Of course. Well, that's really cool and interesting story. I would say it really flows from one thing to another. So really, it all started with when I started coding at 10 years old. I had just had access to my first PC and I found a gaming engine on a CD that went together with the magazine. So then that's how I kickstarted my coding obsession in a way. And I made my first game when I was 13, my first like semi good game, I would say. And then from there, I just started doing more different things. I created my own Linux distribution when I was 15. And then when I finished, when I graduated high school, me and my co-founder started our first startup, which was a media center. And while this was happening in parallel, while I was in high school, I mined Bitcoin on my CPU because I wanted to pay for a file sharing or no file sharing, a file storage service, which was very similar to Dropbox, but it also had a Bitcoin payment option. And of course, being in high school, I didn't have any money of my own. So I saw that it also had an alternative payment option, which was Bitcoin. Uh, and they also said that you could mine it yourself. So I was, uh, I was like, sure, this is like free money. So I mined a lot of Bitcoin back then with my CPU and I spent it all on this file sharing service. So anyway, after this, me and my co-founder started our first startup, which was a media center and it made it big, it took a lot of persistence, but in about three years, it made it really big. And today we're still involved with it as advisors, but today it's under a different management and it it went over 25 million users. And from that startup, actually, we wanted to monetize it. So the only way to monetize it was through ads. And then we found out that most of the ad networks were fraudulent. So at about at that time, we started playing with Ethereum and we founded Addix Network, which is an advertising network built on Ethereum, which is meant to bring transparency into the ad tech market. And so we built it kind of our, out of our own need. but because the clients were publishers and advertisers who were not really technical people, had huge issues setting up Ethereum wallets and writing down seed phrases and funding their wallets with ETH in order to in order to pay for gas. So all of those were like barriers to entry and like like hoops to to jump through for addicts users. So 
from that point on, we had basically we had a view on the market of Ethereum wallets, and we figured out that this is a point of friction for everyone, and not only for new users but also for people who are familiar with crypto as well. So, as part of Addict, we made a built-in smart contract wallet to solve all of these problems and to allow people to sign up with email, to allow people to pay gas with stable coins, and to eliminate, for example, ERC twenty approvals. And basically, we solved all of these issues within Addix, and then we spun this off into Empire because in 2020, when when the DeFi summer was happening, we built all of these amazing UX improvements for Ethereum, and uh, they deserve to be like they deserve to be universal, not only not only a part of this advertising network, which is a pretty niche product, but they deserve to live on it on their own. So we spun this out and that's how Empire started, basically. Got it. Super interesting. Okay, so, you know, even back in 2020 and 2021, there were still some competitors in the market, right? So you've kind of touched on, a, I think, on a high level what some of the problems you guys were seeing with existing wallet products were. But I'm curious, you know, did you guys actively set out early on to differentiate yourselves for ease of use and really just everything you guys were thinking back then around, you know, situating yourselves into an existing market? Because it, it wasn't exactly like no wallets were in existence, right? Yeah, well, the thing is, when we started really being a smart contract wallet and being built on account abstraction and shipping all these account abstraction features was a pretty big differentiator already because the only account abstraction wallets on the market really back then were Argent, Safe, and a couple of others. It wasn't like right now when we have like multiple account abstraction wallets. So that was one of our first differentiators. But I would say that the biggest way that we're different from other wallets is that when you think about it really hard, no one is going for MetaMask's market. Everyone is trying to like kind of get a vertical, like for example, either getting the vertical of people who are brand new to crypto or the vertical of like multi-sigs, DAOs, companies, enterprises, or like the gaming vertical, right? And no one is really targeting the desktop users who are the power users of Ethereum who also need a wallet which is easier to use and more powerful than MetaMask. Those people are not like they're not comfortable with this product either. But we just assume that we just assume that the problem is always with the people who are new to crypto and that they are the most confused really and that they are having the most points of friction. But in reality, even the Ethereum power users are struggling with the state of wallets right now. So I would say that we're kind of the first wallet which is both powerful and easy to use. Yeah, super interesting. So, you know, with ERC4337 update going live recently, obviously account abstraction is kind of in the air as a point of conversation, which I imagine is probably kind of funny for maybe for you, having, you know, been doing what you guys have been doing for quite some time. <clears throat> but you you guys tweeted, or you you specifically tweeted earlier this year that account abstraction's already been live on Ethereum for over, you know, several years. So I guess my question would be, what did you mean by that? And, you know, even just taking a bigger step back, can we kind of unpack what account abstraction is and maybe the significance of ERC-4337 in light of what you meant by your tweet? Yeah, that's actually an excellent point of discussion because account abstraction didn't always mean what it means right now. And in the context of what it means right now, yes, it did exist for a long time. In the context of what it meant originally, it never existed and it still doesn't. So let me clarify. So 
account abstraction is in its basic form, and this is the definition that is that is always true, no matter if it is before 4.337 or after, it's the effort to make smart contract wallets adopted. So anything that helps smart contract wallets get adoption, I would say, personally for me, is account abstraction. And this definition holds true for, for anything, for like for 4.337, for what account abstraction was in the past, and for what account abstraction is. Now let's look at how the definition has changed in its specifics. So originally, the concrete definition of account abstraction was making smart contract wallets native to the Ethereum chain. So this would mean that smart contract wallets would be a first-class citizen. And you would still hear people talking about this when they say native account abstraction. I'm sure that you've heard about this, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, and and StarkNet, for example, is one of the chains that has this, that has native account abstraction. And this really, what this means is that smart contract wallets are baked into the chain. And this makes a lot of things easier down the line, like DAP integrations, making sure that there is no compatibility issues, making making transactions easier to send as well. And 4337 changed this definition from the original idea that a smart contract wallets should be native uh, to the idea that a smart contract na- a smart contract wallets should be adjacent and they should be like implemented in the second layer in the application layer, but they should be implemented in a standardized way. So this is what 4337 did. And this is kind of like its biggest advantage, but also a small disadvantage. So it's a big advantage because it finally like paved the way for smart contract wallets to get adopted without having to change anything in Ethereum. So that's why saying 4337 went live is a bit misleading because on Ethereum specifically, the way it went live is by deploying a contract, which is like a user space thing. It's not something that was changed in Ethereum. So that's good because because it allowed it to happen. Because previous account abstraction proposals were very contentious and changed some things in Ethereum, which are risky, bring extra security risks and are generally really hard to verify. So that's why having having a way to get this implemented without changing Ethereum itself proved out to be the best way forward. So yeah, that's that's how it changed the definition. So we went from native account abstraction to non-native but standardized account abstraction. So what it ended up being is a way to send smart contract wallet transactions without having to build proprietary layers or without having uh, the need of a new way. So yeah. Got it. Yeah, really, really helpful. So, you know, maybe taking a step back to the early days of Empire, you know, every every new project has surprises, right? There's things you kind of expect to happen that don't or things happen that you weren't expecting. Yeah. And so I, th- I think I'm always curious in conversations, you know, what were one or two of those, you know, maybe earliest, biggest surprises in the early days? And how did you and your team sort of navigate those surprises? Well, I would say that for example, from a technical perspective, we didn't have any because we were doing this with ADEX already. So nothing really, there, there were no technical challenges per se. There were some, of course, the contracts have to get audited and we have to, we have to make sure that they're at the highest level of security. But the technical part for us was relatively straightforward, I would say. The part that was surprising is that the original idea of having a web-based wallet turned out to be suboptimal and now we're moving towards an extension. And the reason for this is that most power users, they do not expect web wallets to be that powerful. This day, there are people who use Ambire daily who don't know that you can connect it with dApps 
I mean the web version. The mobile version is more obvious, but they do not know that the web version could be connected to dApps. That's one thing. And then there are other things that people just don't know that the product can do. And that's just because it's the wrong, it's the wrong form factor. People expect a powerful, a powerful wallet to be an extension. Um, not necessarily a web wallet. People associate web applications with dApps, not with not with wallets. So, yeah, like purely from a UX perspective, I think we we got that not completely right, and that is one of the things that surprised us. The other thing is connecting to dApps through Wallet Connect is kind of cumbersome, especially if both things like the dApp and the wallet are browser tabs. And you have this UX of having to switch through tabs to connect to a DAP. So yeah, it's kind of cumbersome. And the other thing is with, with a web wallet, it's not really secure to import private keys in it. So really, you can use hardware wallets and that's completely secure. Or you can use the email password authentication, which uses a multisig under the hood. But you cannot import like single private keys. And this is by design. And this is something that the extension also solves. So yeah, it's mostly UX things that, that caught us off guard, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, maybe jumping forward to kind of more present day, I'm, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about your decision to create a wallet token and DAO? And maybe just in general, like how's the progressive decentralization process been going thus far? Is there anything kind of worth calling out in this conversation? Yeah, so... We, we greatly believe that a wallet should be governed by its users. And in order to achieve that, what we're doing is we're distributing the token to the people who hold the most funds uh, in the wallet. And this works on a continuous basis. So like every 10 seconds or so, whatever the recalculation period is, I think it's like 30 seconds. But every 30 seconds, you would get a proportional amount depending on like the proportion of the funds you hold in comparison to like the total TVL of the wallet. And the whole purpose of this is that when you think about it, wallets really at one point reach reach kind of a point of contention. And we've seen this with many of the big wallets where like adding features would become contentious for the users. So like users would argue over specific features and would like would not be happy with any change made to the wallet. And this applies to any big like core product. When I say core, I mean a product deeply embedded in your daily workflow. Uh, so then it becomes really difficult for the team that's developing this product to make decisions about this product going forward. Essentially, this is what we want to avoid. And another thing we, we want to do is like to essentially build an economy around stuff like default tokens. Because we see this as a huge point of value. For example, when it comes to like tokens, which are listed by default in Ambire, when Ambire has millions of users, there will be a lot of value in, in which tokens are listed by default. Obviously, it's kind of like an advertising opportunity, but also it would be really unfair for the team to decide, to decide those behind the scenes. And it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fair to the users, but also it's not transparent and it's not in the ethos of Web3. So we see great value in making this process in in making this process open to governance and having the users decide those things in basically like a DAO a DAO process. First, because we would see like the true economics of it working, because we would see how how valuable those listing spots are actually. And second of all, it will be transparent for everyone, which is great. Love it. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, maybe a recurring question here on the show has kind of become, if I ask the future of crypto is blank, how would you fill in the blank? Like just in general, how are you seeing the future of crypto these days kind of in light of, you know, just general sort of bear market, 
kind of lingering and then also, you know, U.S. regulatory stuff going on, et cetera, et cetera. Looking past all that, like, where do you see the future of crypto? Well, if I were to pick a single word, I would simply say interesting. Obviously, I'm, I'm a big believer, but I think a lot of a lot of things need to change and we need to start embracing the cyberpunk side of it. We need to start embracing sort of the anti-establishment side of it. I'm not saying that we go completely against regulations and completely, completely against like everything. But what I'm saying is that we have to realize at one point that personal freedom and especially financial freedom to some extent is clashing with the system and to some extent we need to be we need to be like kind of protected against that and we need to be we need to keep in mind that we're going to get attacked from all places and also we need to keep in mind that for the majority of the world to see value in crypto they have to see us as more than a casino and they have to realize how important financial freedom is because at the moment the only way we attract new audiences is through the casino selling point so like everyone who goes into crypto goes for the like for the get rich quick mentality in a way and very few people actually go go into it because of the financial freedom element so i think that that this is exactly what we need i think that we need to start promoting the financial freedom element a bit more and as the world goes into this very weird state of basically macroeconomic weirdness and maybe hyperinflation at one point. I think that people are going to start realizing this, even even so, so to speak, normal people. And that's how I think that we're going to get significant adoption. Because what we're getting right now is not is not significant. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people go in for the gambling element, and then during bear markets they sort of chill or they go out of it or they like rage quit permanently and there's very very little actual real usage like for example using Aave to get loans or like using Bitcoin Lightning Network to do payments and there's very little of that a lot of trading and gambling which is not a bad thing something that's definitely needed like trading and market economics is part of this of course but what I'm saying is that people start to people start need to start to think about the use case of financial freedom and like truly being independent and being sort of protected from the the traditional financial system. Yeah, I really, really kind of resonate with that and and like everything you just said. Okay, so Ivo, maybe two last questions here. First question would be, you know, for other founders building in crypto, say, and really say, you know, speaking to yourself, maybe at the beginning of this journey, what would your most generalizable advice that you might want to impart to yourself having been on this journey thus far? So one of the things is, I would say, it's really important to keep your cadence of like company updates, because unlike other industries, this is not an industry where you can build in stealth. Of course, you can build in stealth, but it's not, I would say it's not advisable. You need to always and constantly be engaging people about what you do because the attention span in crypto is even lower than the attention span in traditional startups. So you need to be like banging the drum all the time and you need to be, you need to be your own like strongest evangelist and be talking about yourself and your company passionately all the time without stopping. There's no excuses like, oh, down in building phase. There's no such thing. You could be building the whole day 
or you could be you could be spending like 24/7 building but people need to know that you're building and people need to know what you're building so that's one thing the other thing is this goes this applies for any startup never be afraid of people stealing your ideas if your idea is truly valuable and if it's valuable in a way that you can execute it that can lead to success then you're the right person to execute it and this is more valuable than the idea itself uh, if you're the right person to execute it so this is something that someone cannot steal and also ideas are very cheap like everyone can come up with with good ideas pretty much and then the third thing and this is like technical and this is advice to technical co-founders and technical people in early stage companies especially if you're coming from a different industry what you need to know is like everything in web3 is broken like from a technical perspective i mean almost everything breaks the moment you touch it like let's say we're talking about some tooling related to solidity it's normal that this tooling is way more broken than what you're used to in web2 or like if you're debugging a solidity contract it's way harder than if you're debugging something in web2 so what i'm saying is that it's a way earlier stage of of a technology so it's normal that everything is like way more rough way rougher and it takes more effort to get used to so yeah i would say that basically it i'm sure that yeah. there are more things that i can that i can say here but off the top of my head i think that's it love it no that's good advice maybe we'll save a whole second episode on thoughts you'd kind of impart to yourself because i'm sure there's a ton more you could share so evo what are you guys working on right now and what's the best way for people to follow along on the journey so we're mainly working on the browser extension, which is going to be amazing. It's going to include a unique ability that I, I would rather not speak for now, but it's going to be pretty much the first extension to, to do this. So people can stay tuned on our Twitter channel, basically on our Twitter and on other social media channels, but Twitter would be best. Perfect. Evo, thank you so much for the time. This is really, really fascinating. And, you know, truly, I... It's interesting to hear the contrast between, you know, some of your thoughts on the future of crypto versus maybe some others that have come on the show. I think it's a really kind of authentic place to be coming from to sort of share the thoughts you shared. And so I appreciate you sharing this. And thank you so much for the time. And I look forward to being able to chat again. So have a great rest of your week here and take care. Thank you for having me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.